0: Hello and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law. Hello and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Anne-Marie Bridey, Alan G. Shepard Professor of Law at the University of Idaho College of Law. We will discuss her article, Fearless Girl Meets Charging Bull. Copyright and the Regulation of Intertextuality, which is published in the UC Irvine Law Review. So welcome to the podcast, Anne-Marie.
1: Thanks, Brian. It's good to be here.
0: Yeah. So I I really enjoyed reading this paper because it picked up on a sort of weird quasi-copyright controversy that was swirling around on the internet for a while. But I was wondering if for people who aren't familiar with the controversy, you could give them a little bit of background so they understand better the context of the conversation that we have. So, you know, charging bowl, the sculpture is pretty well known iconic sculpture in lower Manhattan, but maybe you could talk a little bit about the, the artist who made it and how it got installed.
1: Sure. So charging bowl, uh, made its debut in Manhattan in 1989. This sculptor is uh, an Italian sculptor named Arturo De Modica, uh, who actually installed it under cover of darkness in front of the New York Stock Exchange and without any permission uh, from either the exchange or the city, uh, which makes his criticism of Fearless Girl kind of interesting because his outrage was that you know, the sculpture showed up in front of his sculpture without anybody's permission. Um, so he created Charging Bull uh, in the wake of the stock market crash of 1989. Uh, and he said the reason he created it was as a symbol of hope for the economic future of the United States. And you know, people have mentioned the fact that it resembles uh, the Merrill Lynch uh, bull trademark. Um, and so uh, it has become associated with capitalism and the stock market the stock market. Uh, and sort of economic prosperity, which was how he intended the sculpture to be uh, perceived by the public.
0: Cool. And, and what about Fearless Girl? Like, who made that and how did it come to be installed in close proximity to Charging Bull?
1: Uh, So Fearless Girl came onto the scene on the day after International Women's Day or on International Women's Day, I can't remember which one, in March of 2017. Um, And it was part of a kind of guerrilla advertising campaign undertaken by uh, State Street Global Advisors uh, in connection with the promotion of one of its uh, exchange-traded funds, right? So it was the, I can't remember the name of the fund, but the fund was set up basically to uh, invest in companies that have good board diversity and that have a higher-than-typical percentage of women uh, on their boards. And so the idea was that uh, Fearless Girl, uh, which was uh, sculpted by a sculptor named Christine Bisbal. Uh, and the whole campaign was done um, in connection with the McCann uh, advertising company. Uh, it was going to be there for one week um, and was just sort of intended to drive a dialogue around issues of female inclusion uh, in corporate governance in Fortune 500 companies and um, Uh, So Fearless Girl actually did have a permit or State Street did have a permit to install Fearless Girl uh, where they did. Uh, But as soon as Demodica saw the sculpture there, uh, he decided he didn't like it uh, and that he was going to try to use copyright law to get Fearless Girl removed uh, from her confrontational position in relation to his work.
0: Right. So... So how about that? I mean, just as a doctrinal matter, do do you think that Demotica has a viable copyright or kind of para-copyright claim? And if not, why not?
1: So I don't. Um, And I should say, actually, that the entire controversy, you know, such as it was, is now moot because Fearless Girl was moved at the end of November of 2018. Uh, to a site near the New York Stock Exchange. So, you know, the entire episode uh, remains incredibly interesting to me as uh, a sort of exploration of the limits of U.S. copyright law, Uh, and it's interesting comparatively in terms of how U.S. copyright law differs from EU copyright law, especially uh, when it comes to moral rights. Um, but it's, it's just kind of funny that now Demotica has gotten what he wants, even though copyright law was not what ultimately gave it to him. Um, so in terms of the, of the copyright claims, he brought two claims. He brought some trademark claims, but those aren't that interesting to me. Um, he brought copyright claims under VARA, the Visual Artist Rights Act, um, and he also alleged a violation of his derivative work rights. Um, under Section 106 of the Copyright Act. Um, so I can talk first, I guess, about the, the moral rights claim. Um, and, sure. And I guess before I talk about that, it, it might be helpful to talk a little bit about how moral rights came to be part of the U.S. copyright framework. Um, so VARA uh, was passed sort of uh, following U.S. accession to the Berne Convention, um, and, and prior to that, there were no moral rights recognized in U.S. copyright law at all. Um, the basis for U.S. copyright law is, is economic rights, right, is the idea that we want to give rights, uh, put copyrights into the hands of those who are best positioned to uh, publish and disseminate copyrighted works to the public. Um, so the focus in U.S. copyright law is very much on uh, economic rights and on alienability uh, of copyright in the interest of making sure that copyrighted works get disseminated out to the broader culture. Um, moral rights under EU law um, are, more, are much more robust, right? And EU copyright law really is centered on the person of the author in a way that US copyright law is not, right? So for example, in EU author's rights, the focus is really on the work as a manifestation of the author's personality, right? And so you get moral rights under EU law where the artist, uh, you know, can control uh, the integrity of uh, his or her work. Um, and you get rights of attribution under EU law uh, that we didn't traditionally have in U.S. copyright law, at least not before Bern accession. Right. So under U.S. copyright law, as I said, the focus, you know, is more on the work as a way of promoting the progress of knowledge in the arts, which is what the, the Constitution tells us copyright should do, um, whereas in uh, Europe, the focus is much more on sort of protecting the author's sense of the work and the author's uh, investment of creative energy uh, in the work. Um, and so, um so the U.S. adopted VARA, but because ZARA was so much in tension with the uh, sort of the economic basis of U.S. copyright law, uh, moral rights came into U.S. law for a very, very narrow um, swath of works, uh, and the rights uh, were uh, commensurately also narrow for that narrow swath of works. Right. So uh, one of the rights that right holders have under Vera uh, for works of visual art is the right of integrity Um, and uh, under U.S. law the right of integrity uh, is limited um, and it protects only the physical integrity of a covered work and not its contextual integrity right so Demodica wanted to use uh, Vera and the right of integrity as a way of trying to control the meaning of his work right trying to control the way other artists could interact with his work, and how other artists could encourage the public to see uh, his work. Um, and so he was, he was sort of attempting to use the right of integrity as a way of policing the contextual integrity of his work, um, but that's really not something that, uh, that Vera permits him to do. Um, and in addition, there's a, a presentation exception in Vera that exempts uh, changes relating to how a work is displayed uh, and how a work is lit. Because one of the things that um, that gallerists and and people who operated museums worried about at the time when uh, the era was being considered um, for inclusion in the Copyright Act was whether the right of integrity, uh, if it was too expansively defined, would really prevent them from... Um, from putting together shows, right, because it would give the artist potentially the ability to say, no, I don't want my work placed alongside the work of this other artist. Um, And so artists and gallerists were very much worried that uh, the introduction of the right of integrity, right, which protects against distortions and mutilations of uh, the work, would would basically inhibit the work of uh, putting on, Art shows and and selling works of art in in you know retail gallery settings.
0: So, if I understand it, then the reason Demotica wouldn't have a right of integrity claim under Vera would be because the installation of Fearless Girl didn't affect the object that Demotica created, and so. As a consequence, it couldn't possibly implicate the Vera integrity right in the first place because it didn't affect the physical thing. Would it be the case that he might have had a more viable integrity claim under EU law, do you think?
1: Well, I think so, because, I mean, you know, under EU law, I think under French law, for example, uh, there is the, the right of integrity extends to excessive criticism of a work. Right, so the work is protected from excessive criticism, and there are also, I think, provisions in EU law in some EU countries that protect uh, contextual integrity, right, and that, that allow the artist greater control over the meaning of the work and that don't limit the right of integrity just to sort of physical alteration or deformation or mutilation of the work. I mean even in US law had there been a kind of temporary physical modification that would have been that would not have been enough to state a claim under VARA. So for example, I think one of the examples that, that there is in the legislative history of VARA is that, you know, if you put Christmas lights on a work that was displayed in the public, that would not create a right of integrity claim.
0: Ah, I see. So <clears throat> in In your paper, you talk uh, significantly about sort of the concept of the author and how the conceptualization of the nature of the work can also affect the concept of the author. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that here. I mean, does this economic versus moral rights conceptualization of the sort of – the way that copyright – works does it affect how how people conceptualize the author as well and the relationship between the author and the work
1: well i think it does because you know when you when you think of copyright as something that's alienable um it becomes something immediately that is somewhat less fully identified with the person of the author Right, so so the idea is that these are works that we put out into the marketplace, that we put out into the public, right, for the public's benefit, but also for the benefit of secondary authors, right, who will interact with those works and build upon those works uh, to produce even more works. Um, when you have a regime that is not focused on alienability and economic rights. I think that the, the relationship between the work and the author seems somehow much more central or inviolable. Um, uh, and, and uh, you know, and I think that's why under EU law, we have much, uh, you know, much stronger moral rights regime than we have under US law.
0: Well, it seems to get into the concept of intertextuality that you mention in the title, and that comes up in various places in in your article. What does that mean? And how is that important, the concept of intertextuality, for understanding how we think about uh, authorship, ownership, and control of works of authorship?
1: Yeah, so the concept of intertextuality comes from uh, from literary theory and specifically from narrative theory. And it's basically concerned with how texts relate to and reference and interact with each other. Um, And the the two theorists on whose work I rely in the paper are M. N. Bakhtin, uh, who's uh, best known for a work called The Dialogic Imagination, um, and Gerard Genette. And both Bakhtin and Genette are sort of fundamentally interested in how how authors sort of engage in dialogue with other authors, and how uh, you know how every individual literary work or work of art um, is a kind of tissue or web or fabric of of multiple works, right? And uh, you know, just this notion that no work is is really created in a vacuum, right? So uh, Bakhtin talks about sort of the difference between monologic authorship and a monologic view of literature and a dialogic authorship or a dialogic view of literature. And monologism, he associates with the genre of poetry, right, where we have this notion, and, and it's what we would, I think, associate with notions of you know romantic authorship, that there's this poet, and the poet has some kind of a unique channel of, uh, for some divine inspiration, and it's this sort of individualized, uh, highly individualized voice of the poet, um, and we are kind of invested in the poet's personality and the poet's unique vision. Um, and the idea is that uh, the poet should control how his or her work is read, um, and that we should be, you know, that we should be reading the work for the purpose of trying un- to understand what the poet is trying to tell us about him or herself. Um, And that's distinguished from dialogic authorship, which Bakhtin associates with the form of the novel, which is this kind of multi-voiced and multi-vocal kind of layered understanding of discourse, right? Where in the novel, you have lots of different characters who are talking to each other, and those characters have uh, different voices, and they come from different subject positions, um, in terms of, of, you know, their education and and where they're situated socioeconomically in society. And so the idea is that in novels you get this kind of, uh, you get a richer discourse, right, and a discourse that's actually populated by all of these different voices interacting with each other. Um, And... uh, So my argument in the article is basically that U.S. copyright law really is much more um, reflective of this kind of dialogic understanding of authorship and of the way texts operate and of the way authors make texts, whereas EU law and authors' rights law is much more monologic and more closely identified with this notion of the author as the kind of controlling consciousness uh in a text right and and the person whose voice um should be heard kind of on its own
0: yeah and and, and in your article you you use kind of the fair use doctrine in u.s copyright law and sort of well corresponding doctrines or the lack thereof i guess under eu law as a way of sort of illustrating that distinction in a doctrinal sense. I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through how that works. Sort of like how does the American concept of the American doctrinal concept of of fair use sort of reflect dialogic understanding as opposed to the way European law thinks of similar kinds of uses of pre-existing works of authorship?
1: Yeah, so the U.S. fair use doctrine uh, is different from exceptions and limitations in the EU in that it's a much more robust and flexible um, doctrine. You know, basically, what fair use doctrine says is that secondary authors can borrow from uh, the works of primary authors without any authorization and without any compensation. Um, you know, for, for a limited range of purposes, but the, uh, you know, the analysis is a flexible one that considers the, you know, the, the purpose and character of the use, that looks at the nature of the original work, that looks at how much of the work was borrowed, and that and that looks also um, at the the effect of the borrowing on the market for the original work, right? And that notion of market harm is closely connected to the grounding of U.S. copyright law in sort of economics, right? And the idea that it's a, that it's an economic right. So we, we're worried about depriving the author of a market for the work that the secondary author is borrowing from, right? But we're not so much worried about, uh, you know, the fact that the, the original author doesn't like the use or wouldn't approve of the use, right? In fact, mm. their use doctrine in the U.S., is specifically structured to permit critical uh, commentary on existing works, right? And and to even permit uh, uses where permission was sought and refused by uh, the author of the original work, right? Whereas in the EU, exception, exceptions and limitations are much more narrow. Um, and, you know, there is, for example, you know, you, you, there's a limited uh, right to quote from uh, existing works, or there's uh, a limited right to parody existing works, but there's nothing as kind of open-ended um, and standards-based uh, as the fair use doctrine. And you know, I've argued that 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 broad fair use doctrine uh, is 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 one of the ways that we know that U.S. copyright law is intended to promote dialogue, right? And and is of understanding of the fact that the way culture moves forward uh, is when works build on each other and when artists are in active dialogue um, with other artists who are both their contemporaries and also other artists who came uh, before them. And I guess we should talk, too, about the derivative work right, um, which was the, the other theory that demotica was pursuing uh, when he sent his demand letter to the city of New York, he alleged both that his right of integrity under Vera had been violated, but also uh, that his derivative work right uh, had been violated. Um, And, you know, U.S. copyright law also places some limits on the derivative work right. You know, for example, um, if there hasn't been copying of material from the original work uh, and there hasn't been any physical incorporation of the original work into the new work, we say that there's no violation of the derivative work right, right? And so this is mm-hmm. a case where neither Vera <clears> nor <throat> the derivative work right could stretch far enough to allow DeModica to exercise control over the positioning of that secondary work sort of in the physical environment of his work. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think that, yeah. you know, the, the narrow derivative work right combined with the broad fair use Doctrine, You know, are ways that we know that U.S. copyright law really is sort of motivated and driven by this fundamentally dialogic understanding of cultural production.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, it seems like in a lot of ways with respect to the derivative work question, I mean, it really reflects how the, the concept of the work is defined really differently. I mean, under U.S. law, it seems you know, to try to be as concrete as possible about, you know, what the work is and by extension, what the work isn't. Whereas this alternative concept of the work is much more discursive. It seems like it's about what the work means, not about what the work kind of constitutes physically.
1: Right. Well, I mean, there's a, I mean, it's interesting. There's a, you know, there's a sense in which kind of the meets and bounds of the work matter Right. Um, But. uh, You know, and I would say they matter under U.S. copyright law, but under U.S. copyright law, the interesting thing about the nature of the copyright in the work is that copyright is kind of I tell this to my students, copyright is unevenly distributed in any given work. Right. Because every work Mm. U.S. copyright law recognizes is uh, is sort of an agglomeration of copyrightable and uncopyrightable elements, right? And so copyright mm-hmm. U.S. copyright law protects the work, right, as this holistic thing, right? But in reality, when it comes to, for example, determining whether somebody's work has been infringed, uh, you know, the instruction is that the courts require us to filter out the unprotected elements of the work. Right. Uh, So that that all that is left behind in theory anyway, is is the is the part of the work that is original to the author who's claiming uh, that his or her work was infringed. Um, And so I think also that that notion that copyright is not evenly distributed is really central to U.S. copyright law. And it, you know, it again reflects this idea that in any given work there is a mixture, right, of stuff that we might properly say belongs to the author, but all kinds of stuff that doesn't belong to the author, right, and, and that you couldn't even plausibly claim originated with the author, right? Whereas I, I think, you know, in the EU you, you much more get this notion of the work as something that is entirely sort of of by and for the author, Uh, And and I I just think they're very, very different, uh, you know, there are different conceptions of authorship. There are different conceptions of what the copyrighted work is and, you know, different conceptions of what it is about the copyrighted work that is in the domain of property and what's not.
0: Yeah. And so so just to shift back to your discussion of, you know, Intertextuality and the kind of monologic, dialogic distinction. I mean, it really struck me that your paper and the circumstance you describe, in a lot of ways, also kind of reflect certain tensions between kind of legal doctrine and the norms of different discursive communities, and how kind of the art world sits uncomfortably. Um <laughs> Straddling in some ways both of the sort of ways of conceptualizing the work that you describe, in so far as you know artists seem often um quite happy to um use materials from other sources in a very dialogic fashion, but once they've created a new work uh, are less happy <laughs> about other people engaging in the same kind of of dialogic activity. And I wonder if, you know, how we should think about that tension between what the law does and how different communities seem to think about what, what they want or what they think should happen or what their expectations about meaning making and use are.
1: It's a hard question. I mean, it's like sort of dialogue for me, but not for thee. I mean, one would hope, I guess, that artists would be, alive to the fact, right, that 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 they stand on the shoulders of giants and alive to the fact that their you know that their work is embedded in a cultural discourse, right, that that, that preceded them and that will exist long after they are gone. Um, and you know I, I'm not sure what to what to do about that tension, you know, because it it it, it seems wrong headed for an artist to act as if his or her work is completely original, right? It, it seems that there's no artist that would say that, um, you know, and yet I do think that we now live in a world that, you know, is kind of copyright obsessed. And I don't know if I say that just because it's sort of the tiny part of the world that I live in, right? But but it does seem particularly, you know, as the digital environment becomes more and more um, you know, pervasive, and as artists feel like they have less and less control over the distribution of their works, um, you know, I don't know, maybe maybe they, they become less willing uh, to, to sort of view themselves as embedded in, uh, in dialogue with others. But, I mean... I mean, there's, you know, there's outright piracy where you're talking about, you know, sort of just the, the, the non-transformative reproduction and sale of somebody else's stuff, right, um, which copyright law is definitely supposed to protect against, um, you know, and, and there's much more kind of productive borrowing, right, that is more piecemeal, um, you know, and that is more transformative uh, in nature, and in indeed, you know, one of the critical considerations in fair use doctrine is how transformative the new work is, right? Because we want to encourage uh, transformations of existing works and transformative uses of existing works, but we want to discourage um, that kind of outright piracy. And so I you know, I am sympathetic to artists who, you know who, you know, who find themselves kind of at the mercy of, you know, online pirates in the digital environment. I am a whole lot less sympathetic, you know, to artists who sue uh, because there was some kind of tiny sample used in uh, in a song.
0: Yeah, then that makes sense. And I also wonder whether part of it isn't a function of the sort of market distinctions between fine art, And commercial art insofar as fine art is so unusual in kind of today's reproduction economy insofar as the work kind of collapses into the unique, um, the unique copy in such a way as there's like one iconic representation that stands for the, the meaning of the work qua the artist, whereas when it comes to reproducible art and in particular commercial art, right? I mean, you have a much more um, clearer distinction between the sort of the meaning of the work and particular copies of the work. And it's at least anecdotally, it seems to me that, you know, people, artists who work in a kind of a reproduction friendly medium seem often more, um, more open to dialogue in the form of things like, you know, fan fiction and like kind of commentary and criticism. Whereas at least anecdotally, again, you know, fine artists where a work has a kind of single iconic representation seem, you know, less open (laughs) to, uh, alternative ways of conceptualizing the meaning of
1: what they've created. I mean, it's interesting to think of it, too, in terms of the audiences for which these works are created, right? Like, you know, fine art is really created for a very small audience in a way, right? It's the people who can who can afford to pay for it. Um, whereas art forms that are more reproducible are created for the public, right? And those artists presumably have a greater stake in having a relationship to a broader public. Right and and part of the relationship that you would have to a broader public as an artist, right is in how your how your fans and how the public receives your work and also how they repurpose your work, right and 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 how the public engages in a dialogue with the artist that's a that's productive, that's productive of other Artwork, Right. Whereas it seems, you know, that in the market for fine art, you're really looking at people who are kind of collectors. Right. There's a there's a sort of investment uh, and collector mentality that that doesn't rely on public reception and doesn't rely on any kind of relationship with a wider public. And so maybe, maybe that's a way of thinking about the distinction between the two, the two kinds of art. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, you know, it's interesting to me, too, to see artists kind of evolve over time in the way they think about this stuff. And I've been thinking more recently about Banksy and, and how Banksy seems to be transforming from this kind of street artist who had no use for copyright and, and, and didn't really think about the market for his work uh, sort of evolve into this person who does these uh, kind of showy, performance art things at auctions, you know, where his work spontaneously shreds itself. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I guess artists even evolve over time and, and, and grapple with their own relationship to fame and, and profitability, and that, that might change the way they conceptualize their work, right, and the, and the, and the ability or the right of other people to engage with, with their work.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I, I guess in closing, Amory, I, I can't help but ask you about, you know, famous recent developments in the fearless girl controversy. Um, I was just wondering if you could briefly mention what those are and say if you think they shed any light on the previous controversy or are they just a totally unrelated but amusing sort of new, um, new sideshow?
1: So, I don't know. I think what you're referring to is a recent, I don't know if it was a lawsuit filed by State Street Global Advisors against Kristen Bisbal, who who is the creator of Fearless Girl, um, because she has, I think, sold some reproductions of the work uh, in violation of a contract that she had with uh, State Street. And State Street also brings trademark claims, I think, in the case. And Interestingly, they don't bring any copyright claims. And so it's hard to know what to say about the nature of that dispute uh, without a copy of the contract. It really makes me want to see and better understand the circumstances under which Vizball created that work for State Street, right? Because it it seems like from, uh, you know, what I've been able to uh, infer... Uh, about the relationship that she was permitted to make reproductions for some purposes, but not for others, and um, so I don't know what to I don't know what to say about that. It seems like uh, like maybe Kristen Bisbal is 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 uh, feeling a little bit of the pinch that uh, Demotica felt, right when he thought he wasn't getting his due as the as the as the creator of the work. I mean, it seems that she wants more range of motion, right, and more authorial prerogative uh, than than the contract that she has with State Street gives her, right? I mean, it it, it can't have been, I mean, obviously it wasn't an employee work made for hire because she wasn't their employee. It can't have been a statutory work made for hire as a commission work because I don't think sculpture's on the list of works, is it? like nine kinds of works that can be statutory works made for hire. Um, And so maybe she assigned the copyright to state street when she created the work, or maybe they took some kind of license
0: uh, from Mm. her.
1: I mean, I don't know if you have any intuitions about how that went.
0: No, not at all. I just, it's, it just seems amusing to me, you know, in this, in the context of this kind of monologic dialogic, point that you make that it's like you know it works both ways and you know (laughs) you you, you can't have it be dialogic when it's convenient and monologic when it's convenient you're sort of you're sort of stuck with legal doctrine um looking at the the nature of copyright protection in one way or the other
1: pretty much i mean i i I guess you you can't have your cake and eat it too right You, you can't uh you can't be the, the one who is uh, engaging in the unwelcome dialogue uh, and then turn around and be the person, you know, who, who wants total control over, uh, over your own work.
0: <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much, Emory. It's been really fun talking to you about your paper. Great.
1: Thanks for having me. It's fun.